Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we are going through the Gospels, and we have been studying about Jesus being deep into his earthly ministry. He has been healing, discipling, sharing, teaching, and even rebuking certain people. And he had recently taken his ministry beyond Galilee, leaving Jerusalem and leaving that area. And he went to the area of Tyre and Sidon. He went to Bethsaida. And last week, we saw Jesus in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And this was north of the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember last week, Jesus was just with his disciples and he asked them a question. He said, who do people say I am? And Jesus' disciples answered. And then Jesus countered with yet another question. He said, okay, but who am I to you? Who do you say that I am? And so this question was extended to each one of us last week. Who is Jesus to you? Is He your Lord? And if Jesus is our Lord, then that means our life must be lived in subjection to Him. It means that we love Him, we obey Him, and we count the cost for following Him. Daily denying ourselves and taking up our cross. So that's where we were last week. And I'd just like to follow up on that. Have you been doing that this week? Have you denied yourself this week? Have you taken up your cross this week? And humbled yourself. Have you been obedient to what God is calling you to do? Well, today we're going to pick up the story and we're going to see what happens next. And we're actually going to continue in Luke's gospel. So turn with me in your Bibles to the gospel of Luke. And we're going to pick up in chapter 9, starting in verse 28. And we're going to see what Jesus does next in his ministry. So if you're following along, Luke chapter 9, verse 28, there are Bibles on the table. If you need them, please go ahead and grab one if you don't have one. Let's look at verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So the author of this gospel, Luke, he was a physician by trade. So you can imagine Luke was very much into details as he wrote. It's actually said that Luke penned more of the New Testament than anyone else by way of word count. So Luke is very much into details. And he tells us just exactly how many days have passed since Jesus had this interaction with the disciples. Eight days. Now, my question is, where is Jesus during this time? Is he still in the last area that we saw him? Is he still in Caesarea Philippi? Well, we're not told. It could very well be that he was still in this place, and the mountain that he went up to was could have been Mount Hermon, which was Caesarea Philippi was at the base of, or it's very possible that he traveled. I mean, eight days have passed. It's very possible he went to a different place. Many people believe this mountain could have been Mount Tabor, which was a whole day's journey to get to. Regardless, Jesus went up on a mountain, and I think if the mountain was important for us to know, Jesus would have included it in his word. I think many people, they get really caught up. Where was the transfiguration? Where did this happen? And I believe God did not disclose the location because he doesn't want people to be focused on the wrong thing. So all we know is Jesus is on a mountain. His exact location, we're not told. Now, once again, we see Jesus' common action here. Something that he did. And I feel like every single week we're in the Gospels, we see the same thing written. What is it? What was his, what was his practice? He went to pray. Jesus went up to this mountain to pray. Jesus, once again, was so focused on the ministry at hand, and he never had a break. People were constantly coming to him, and he stayed able to minister because he was so deeply in prayer. 
And so maybe you're going through a hardship right now and you're so drowned by your fear and anxiety, I'd ask, are you praying? Maybe your ministry is not going the way that God intends it to go. I'll ask, are you praying within your ministering? Jesus always found time to pray. Now, my next question. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. Why not all the rest of the twelve? Did Jesus like these three better than the other twelve, than the rest of them? Why did Jesus only bring up these three men? And this isn't the only story Jesus did this in. If you remember when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, he only took Peter, James, and John. In the Garden of Gethsemane later, all the disciples went with him, but Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went to a separate place in the garden. So why these three? Does Jesus love the other disciples less? No. Jesus loves all the disciples the same. I believe Jesus was exemplifying something that we all should be doing. Discipleship. And now Jesus was discipling all 12 of the disciples, but he took these three and he poured into them in the same way we should always be pouring into someone ourselves. And the Apostle Paul really modeled this for us as well, this idea of discipleship. Now, Paul planted many churches. He had many affiliations with so many Christians throughout Asia. And yet he had a spiritual son named Timothy that he took and he poured into a lot. He trained up to continue in the work that God called him to. And so this idea of discipleship is something we all should be doing because Jesus commanded us to go out and make disciples. To have someone who's pouring into us and to have someone that we ourselves are pouring into. And I believe Jesus was taking these three men to train them up to be the leaders in the church that they were going to be. And if you remember when Jesus called these men, he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And Jesus here is teaching them and training them on what that means and how they're going to do this. So I believe Jesus was discipling these three, pouring into them. So I asked this question, are, are you actively discipling in your personal walk with Christ? And you might say, well, isn't discipleship only for a pastor or an elder in the church? No. Discipleship is for all Christians. Just as the Great Commission is for all Christians. Just as we're all called to go out and share, so we're all called to go out and pour in to someone and raise someone up in the work of the Lord. Yet so many people, they want to minister based on emotional experiences. And you see this very often today in many churches. They want to go out and they want to see thousands saved, but they don't want to follow up and actually explain how to walk and live as a Christian. So many Christians are into the numbers instead of the, of the quality of the followers. And once again, as we've seen Jesus model, he was interested in the quality, not the quantity. And so are you going out or are you making disciples? Well, let's see what happens next in verse 29. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. So Luke describes Jesus being transfigured or transformed before the disciples. And we're going to find out later the disciples, you know, they dozed off. We'll, we'll read that later in the scripture. But the disciples were about to experience an amazing, amazing sight. They were going to see this glorious image of Jesus. They were going to be a witness of the incredible glory of Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to the order of events that led up to this point. The disciples were going to be a witness to the glory of Jesus after being in prayer. Through being in an active state of worship, they were a witness to Christ's glory. Now, this isn't the first time that we see this. We also see this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Before John has this vision of Jesus... 
John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So in other words, he was in an active state of worship when he got this vision from Jesus. And I think that's really significant because so many people want to hear from God and hear from Jesus yet refuse to worship Him. So many people want to know God's will. You know, being in the youth ministry, you get this one a lot from the youth. Well, I don't know what God's will is for my life. How do I find that out? And the question we always go to is, are you reading the Word? No. Well, that's a good place to start. Right? If you want to hear from God, you need to be in His presence. Many people want to have close communion with Christ, and yet they refuse to pray. And so it's important we don't miss this here. This great display of glory was going to be revealed to the disciples after they were in an active state of worship. Now, Luke describes Jesus as having his face altered and his clothes becoming white and glistening. This is a picture of Jesus in a glorified state. This shows us that it was truly amazing and truly a miracle that Jesus was able to contain his full deity of being God and being able to contain that in the form of a man. It's amazing to think about. But this picture of, of this glorified Jesus, it shows us two things. Number one, Jesus is indeed God. And as many people attack the deity of Jesus today, we must remember that Jesus is God. If he's not, we don't have a faith. Jesus is who he says he is, fully God and fully man. And many people will say, well, I don't understand that. None of us do. None of us can fully understand who Jesus is. That's part of the mystery and the amazement of who he is, but we know he's fully God and fully man. And this here tells us he is indeed God. And number two, it also shows us that even though Jesus was fully man, during his time of ministry, he still remained to be fully God. He didn't just come down, become a man and say, okay, I'm not God anymore. I'll be God when I rise again from the dead. No, he was always God. And this just proves it to us. Fully man and fully God. And I think it's important, too, as we, as we see this picture of Jesus in, in his glory, right? This image of Jesus glistening in white. This is the Jesus that each one of us will give account to one day. Many people have this idea that, you know, we're going we're gonna to get up to heaven and we're going to have this back and forth dialogue as we talk to Jesus giving account for the way we live our lives. No, Jesus is going to be glorified when we stand before him. And the only logical response we're going to have to seeing this glorified Jesus is to fall down in awe of who he is. I won't be up there saying, well, Jesus, this is why I didn't do this. No, I won't be given excuses. I'll be in awe of who he is. Each one of us will. So it's important we remember that. We need to get our hearts right with Jesus now. So when we face him, we don't have to be ashamed. So let's look at verses 30 through 31. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So as Jesus is transfigured on this mountain, it says two men appear with him. Now I want you to notice, two men appear. Luke didn't say that two faces appeared in the clouds. He said two men appear with Jesus. So we, we believe this is very a tangible appearance of these two men standing with Jesus. Now, why these two men? Why Moses and Elijah? And I guess we could ask the same question we asked about the disciples. Why wasn't Jeremiah there? Or Daniel? Or Ezekiel? Or Isaiah? Why was it Moses and Elijah? Well, I think the answer is given to us that Moses is a picture of the law 
while Elijah is a picture of the prophets. And Jesus coming, being the Messiah, he was fulfilling the law and he was fulfilling the prophecies made by the prophets. Now you might wonder, well, why did Elijah represent the prophets and not one of the other prophets? Well, if you remember last week, we talked about how Elijah was prophesied to come before Jesus and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so Elijah was very significant when it came to the prophecy of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, many people believe Jesus was Elijah. And so it's significant that these two men appear with Jesus because Jesus was fulfilling the law and he was fulfilling the prophecies made concerning him. Now, I find it interesting and fascinating what these men discuss with Jesus. Look what it says. It says they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Why would they discuss this with Jesus? Now, we're not told specifically. It could be that these two men, they prophesied about Jesus and they didn't quite understand how he was going to fulfill the prophecies they made regarding him. We're not told exactly what the dialogue is. We would have if the disciples weren't asleep. They could have heard what was being said, but they were sleeping. So we're not told. It could have been that maybe Jesus was explaining to Moses how Moses, he wanted to, he wanted to be a sacrifice for the people of Israel. In Exodus 32, verse 32, Moses was interceding for the Israelites and he said, God, just kill me and spare them. Let me be the substitute. And God didn't allow that. Moses wasn't an adequate substitute for the people. So maybe Jesus was explaining how he is the perfect substitute, not just for the Jews, but for all people. Maybe he was explaining to Elijah how he wasn't going to run from death, but he was going to go to the cross willingly. Again, we're not told what the conversation was, but I think it's fascinating. But we know this much. The emphasis and the basis of their conversation was around one thing, the death of Jesus. That's all that mattered. The work of Jesus Christ, the complete work of Christ's death on the cross. And maybe you have been living your life not based on the complete work of Christ on the cross. Maybe you've been living in guilt over sin that you've committed. Maybe you think that God really can't forgive you. Maybe you think that you need to pay a price for your sin because repentance is not enough and your focus is not on the complete work of Christ. When Christ died on the cross for your sins, His blood covered all of your sins. You don't need to live in guilt. Jesus cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, an infinite distance that does not meet up again. So are you living your life based upon the complete work of Christ? And maybe you've lost sight of the work of Christ in your ministry. Your ministry is no longer about what Jesus has done. Now it's about what you can do and what you've done. It's not about Jesus anymore. Notice, these men weren't talking about themselves and the work that they did. They were talking about Jesus. And Jesus was the focus and the emphasis here. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you wonder, what can save me and wash me clean? It's the blood of Jesus and that alone. Not your works, not the good things that you do, only the blood of Jesus. The complete work of Christ on the cross. Let's look at verse 32. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Now, I love the disciples. Once again, I can relate so much to them. Right? And I'm sure many of you can. That's why I love being up here. Because I know who you are. We're like the disciples who sleep. You know who you are. I know who you are. Right? But we can relate to the disciples. The disciples were heavy with sleep. And if you remember when Jesus took him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, hey, can you watch and pray with me? What was their response? To sleep. 
And here, here they are again. You, you know, Jesus takes them up to this mountain and what do they do? They go to sleep. Now, this is amazing because they could have been listening in on this conversation that Jesus was having with Elijah and Moses, but they didn't because they were sleeping. And so it's pretty significant that they were missing out because they were asleep. What are you missing out on because you're asleep spiritually? Maybe you can't see what Jesus is trying to do and work in your life because you're not focused on Jesus. You're focused on other things and you're sleeping spiritually to what God is trying to do in and around you. What are you missing out on because you're asleep? I was guilty of this this week. I had been ministering to this, to this one man that I met and praise the Lord, he gave his life to the Lord this week. But I've been, I've been talking to him for weeks now. And every time I've just had this fear in my heart that if I bring up the gospel, he's going to reject it. He's going to push it away. I'm going to ruin this, this relationship that I'm trying to build with him. But this week, God just burdened my heart. You have to share with him. You've been meeting with him for weeks now, and not once have you opened your mouth about the gospel. You need to share. So I shared, praise the Lord. He gave his life to the Lord. But you know what he said to me after? He said, all these weeks I've been meeting with you, and I've been waiting to hear about this. But I was so blind to that because I was sleeping spiritually. And what was blinding me? Fear. Doubt. Worry. So what is it that is stealing your focus and you're missing out on what Jesus is trying to do because you're sleeping and you won't wake up to what Jesus is trying to do around you? And there's so many Christians going out and missing out on what God is seeking to do because they refuse to wake up. So it's an interesting point. Now, I find Luke's... Depiction of this amazing because Luke is the only author who actually records this, that they were heavy with sleep. Which is funny because Luke wasn't there, right? And it said that Peter, he kind of shared with Mark what to write. And, and Luke is the one who says they were sleeping. I think that's pretty funny and fascinating. But regardless, Luke also says something else here. And I think this is an amazing way that he words this. It says, when Peter and the other two woke up, they saw Jesus' glory, and watch this, the, the two men. Those two men who stood with Jesus. This was Moses and Elijah. This was who everyone was living based around the writings of. Can you imagine if the religious leaders saw Moses and Elijah? They would probably have a heart attack. So why isn't Luke putting a greater emphasis on these two men? Because the emphasis was on Jesus. Right? The emphasis was only on one thing and only on one person here. It was Jesus. Because nothing could be compared to the glory that was being displayed in Jesus Christ. And when the disciples woke up, they're like, oh, there's those two guys. Oh my goodness, look at the glory of Jesus. It, it seems as when they saw Jesus, everything else just went dim. And Luke just records, yeah, those two men. The emphasis was on Jesus because nothing could compare with him. So once again, I ask this, what is the emphasis on in the way you live your life and the way that you minister? Is it on Jesus or is it on other things? See, we're very crafty. We think in our minds that we have so many ideas of how we're going to reach and save people that we put Jesus and his word on the back burner when reality is only Jesus and his word are going to save people. It's not my ideas. It's not my education or lack thereof. It's not my money. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. The disciples now, all they could focus on was the glory of Jesus. Is your focus on the glory of Jesus? 
And maybe you hear that and you say, well, how do I focus on Christ's glory? What does that even mean? What does the word glory mean? The word glory, it means to behold God's beauty. It means to be in awe of who he is. You acknowledge him. When it says that Jesus is glorious, you're saying he's beautiful. You're in awe of him. You're in awe of his majesty. Does this describe how you view Jesus throughout your week? Are you focused on his beauty? Focused on his glory? To be focused on his glory means you walk and you live in the knowledge of who he is. You know that he's God and you know that he can do anything. Focusing on his glory means that you know that he's enough. Knowing that he's the reason we have life and without him we're nothing. Focusing on his glory means to know that he is holy and that there is no one like him. And that's how it was for these disciples. Initially, when they saw Jesus, all they could focus on was him and his glory. So how do we behold his glory? By being in his presence. Moses, the very man who's here with Jesus back in the Old Testament, he went up on Mount Sinai and he was really just a mediator between God and the people of Israel. And he met with God, and it says in Exodus 33:11 that he spoke to God face to face like a man. And whenever Moses would go down from Mount Sinai, it said his face shone. It was so bright they had to put a veil over it. Why? Because he was in the presence of God. His face radiated because he was in God's presence. The disciples, they were in the presence of Christ's glory here. By being in the presence of Jesus, we radiate Jesus. We start to look like him. It starts to become apparent that we've been in his presence. And the same thing would happen later with Peter and John in Acts 4 when they're standing before the religious leaders. They had been arrested and they were told, listen, you're not allowed to speak the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter and John, Peter's response was, well, we, we can't help but talk about the things we have seen and the things we've heard. And it says the religious leaders looked at Peter and John and it said they realized they were uneducated, they were untrained, but they knew they had been with Jesus. They radiated Jesus because they were constantly in his presence. Are you in the presence of Jesus? Are you focused on who he is? When people look at your life, do they see Jesus? Or do they see a reflection of themselves? Do they see this world? Do they see sin? Would your life look any different if you were not a Christian at all? That's a scary question for some people. But we're supposed to look different. Are your eyes fixed on who Jesus is and his greatness? Or have you forgotten who your God is? Has Jesus become this weak idea in your life? Or have you forgotten that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess that he's Lord of? Have you forgotten who it is that we serve? Let's look at verse 33. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Once again, I love Peter because Peter does many things that I do. And I'm sure if I were Peter in this situation, I probably would have done worse than he did. But once again, Peter was missing the point. Now, what was Peter's error here? Because he made a critical mistake. What was the mistake here? Was it speaking before thinking? Maybe. That's a good lesson for all of us, to think before we speak. I know I struggle with this, and this is why I need to read Proverbs every day, because I need to be told, Christian, shut your mouth. Think before you speak. Peter didn't do that here, but I believe that wasn't his error. I believe Peter's error here was that he wanted to build a tabernacle or an altar or this tent of worship for Jesus 
Moses and Elijah as if they were equal, as if they were on the same level and deserving of the same response. Peter put Jesus on the same level as two mere men. Great men of faith, men of great renown by all means who have done great things for God's kingdom, but men nonetheless. And he put Jesus on the same level. Number one, the worship of God starts in our hearts. It's not, we don't need to build something to worship God. Right? Peter, he couldn't comprehend the worship that needed to take place in his heart first. But he put these two men on the same level of Jesus, who is the God of all glory. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18 says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. This is the Jesus we serve. Does this Jesus sound like he should be put on the same level as mere men? The answer is no, because Jesus is God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he deserves our worship, and he shouldn't be treated as if he were just like one of us. He's not on the same level. And yet so many Christians today, they serve and share Jesus as if he were just like the gods of the people of this land. So many don't recognize the power that is in Jesus. So many don't recognize that Jesus has the power and the ability to save. He's not like the gods of this land. We didn't create him. He created us. Through him, all things were created and all things will be put in subjection under him. This is the one that we serve. So what is it in your life that you're putting on the same level of Jesus or even putting before Jesus? Could be your time. Could be an idol in your life. I don't know what that is. Something that is separating you from Jesus. But you're putting something higher than Jesus. Nothing should be higher than Jesus in our lives. There's no none higher, none greater. We sang it in the song. There's none like our God. And there is life only in Jesus. There's salvation in no other name. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter would say this, there is salvation in no other name. When the religious leaders told Peter and John, hey, don't share Jesus anymore, Peter's response was, oh, I'm going to share him. Why? Because there is salvation in no other name. There's nothing you can say to me that's going to make me stop sharing about this Jesus. What a heart. And it's not like the religious leader said, well, if you share Jesus, you know, we're not going to let you in the synagogue. No, they said, we'll put you in prison. We'll kill you if you share Jesus. And he said, you know what? Can't help but share about the things we've seen, the things which we have heard. There's salvation in no other name. That's putting Jesus above all things, even his own life. Is Jesus revered the same in your heart? Or perhaps maybe you've been trying to share glory with Jesus. And you might be like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, maybe you've been ministering and doing all these things for God's kingdom, but you're trying to receive the glory and the credit for doing it. Instead of giving glory to the one who actually has done the work, Jesus. Right? We hear this example a lot, but a doctor, whenever they perform a surgery, they wear gloves. But guess what? The doctor doesn't need to wear the glove in order to perform the surgery. All we are are the gloves. God doesn't need to use us. He chooses to. He does the work. So we shouldn't try to steal the glory for something that Jesus has done in and through our lives. 
He alone deserves all glory, honor, and power. Let's continue in verses 34 through 36. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. So as Peter is saying this, as he's just speaking, he doesn't even know what he's saying. Just like many of us at times, we don't even know what we're saying as we're saying things. A cloud overshadows them and they hear the voice of God. And this voice, God the Father, he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now there's five points that that I see in these verses. Number one, look at the disciples' response to God here. Their response to him was fear. Now this word fear, it's a word that means to have reverence. It means you treat someone differently. And it means you obey someone because of the reverence you have for them. So you'll hear many people say today, well, we don't have to fear God anymore. Uh, yeah, we do. Of course, we need to put reverence on his name for who he is, revere him, obey him, and treat him differently. Why? Because he is God. So the disciples' response was fear. They were being reverent toward who Jesus was. Does this describe you? Or perhaps you've been lacking the fear of God in your life. I know it lacks in the church. And I'm not saying this church. I'm saying the church as a whole. So much lack of a fear of God. Because if we truly fear God, if we truly love Him, remember what Jesus said, you'll obey my commands. We read that last week. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. You'll do what I told you to do. Number two, when God spoke, the glory was overwhelming for them. They were so overwhelmed by the glory of God as this voice spoke to them. Everything else faded away and all the focus was on the glory of God. What has been distracting you from focusing on God's glory? And what has been distracting you or stealing your attention off who God is? When is the last time you've been overwhelmed by who God is? Overwhelmed by the fact that He is God, the fact that He can do anything, the fact that He spoke the earth into existence. And He knows and holds all things. What has been taking that from you? Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's fear, anxiety, pride, or another sin in your life. What has been keeping you from being overwhelmed by God's presence? The third point I see here. God reaffirmed to the disciples and to us who Jesus is. Right? This voice of God said, this is my beloved son. Remember, and saying that Jesus was the son of God was saying that he was God. He was the coming one in whom our hope is in. And this voice tells us, tells us to hear him. For one, I believe someone in here needs to be reminded of who Jesus is. He is who he says he is. Number two, maybe you've been turning a deaf ear to what Jesus has been speaking, a deaf ear to what God's word says. Perhaps God has been putting on your heart to do something. He's been calling you to something and you haven't been doing it. You have not been obedient to that command that God is giving you. You've been turning a deaf ear. Acting like you don't hear it. Trying to ignore it. And God is speaking the same thing to us as He was speaking to the disciples here. Listen. Do not turn a deaf ear to the commands of Jesus. I love in Revelation, every time Jesus would finish one of his letters to the churches, he always said this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what that interprets to mean is, listen up, pay careful attention to what I am saying. 
Does this describe how you treat Jesus and His Word? You're paying careful attention to Him and listening to what He's calling you to do. So maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, well, how can we listen and hear the voice of Jesus today? Through His Word. Romans 10.17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So are you in the Word? The fourth point I see here. When the cloud overshadowed the disciples and after they heard this voice of God, all that was left was Jesus. Once again, the emphasis was not on Moses. It wasn't on Elijah. It was on Jesus and Jesus alone. He was the priority in the emphasis. And the fifth point, the last point I see here was the disciples kept quiet and told no one in those days. So two questions I have with this. Number one, why wouldn't the disciples go tell people, hey, I just saw Moses and Elijah. If I were them, I would go right to the first synagogue I saw and I would say, guess what? This is the Messiah. And you know how I know that? Because I just talked to the guy that you claim to be obedient to. Yeah, I just talked to Moses. This is the Messiah. But the disciples didn't do that. Why? Well, once again, as we looked at last week, if the disciples were to make this news widespread, people would try to keep Jesus from going to the cross. People would have tried preventing Jesus from going to do what he was called to do. They would try to make him a king, try to make him a ruler, and try to keep him from going to the cross. But I want you to notice, just again, as Luke is very careful about details, look what he says. They told no one in those days. Peter and John would later record this event. As a matter of fact, when John wrote the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 14... He said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He's referring probably to this moment. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.16, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So I believe when these two men wrote these, I believe this is what they were referring to. So remember the wording. Luke said they didn't tell anyone in those days. But later on, they would share about this experience with Jesus. When's the last time you shared about your time in the presence of Jesus? When is the last time that you shared with someone, hey, this is what God was speaking to me, and it's amazing. Or look look what God encouraged my heart with today. Look what he's challenged me with. When's the last time you shared and were excited to tell someone about what Jesus was showing you in his presence? Are you excited to be in His presence? And I get it. Sometimes it's difficult for me to be in the Word. It's difficult to be in prayer. But it shouldn't be. We're in a relationship with God. Let's look at verses 37 through 40. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met Him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So now you see why Jesus was always in prayer. He gets down from the mountain and immediately thousands of people come to Jesus. Now amongst these thousands, a man cries out to Jesus. This is pretty amazing. This man must have had quite the voice. If he was able to raise his voice loud enough in the midst of thousands of people for Jesus to hear him. But I think it's pretty encouraging Jesus heard him, even in the midst of thousands of people. And maybe you're here today and you think, does Jesus really hear me? 
because I've been praying, but I feel like He's not answering my prayers. I feel like He's not listening and paying attention to me. Yes, He sees you. He acknowledges you. He hears all of your prayers, just like He heard this man crying out in the midst of thousands of people. But this man, he begs Jesus to heal his sons, stating that Jesus' disciples were unable to cast this demon out. Now this is fascinating, because in Matthew 10.1, Jesus gave his disciples authority to cast out demonic spirits. But here we see Jesus' disciples could not cast out this demon. Why? Well, I think the answer is found in Matthew 17, in Matthew's account of this, in verse 19. And it says this, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So Jesus explains why the disciples were unable to cast this demon out. They had a lack of faith. And when Jesus said they don't go up by prayer and fasting, Jesus was referring to being in the presence of God. If you're not in the presence of God, you're not going to be effective in ministry. The disciples weren't effective and weren't able to do what they were called to do. Why? Because they weren't in Christ's presence. They weren't focused on His power. And now you see the importance why we need to be focused on the glory of Jesus and who He is. Because if we're not, we're not going to be effective in the work He's called us to do. Just like the disciples weren't. So many ministries and missionaries fail in the work God has for them. Why? Because they try to minister in their own strength and try to go without being in the presence of God. And I get it. Sometimes the day rushes in. I don't have time. I got this meeting. I got this appointment. I got to go. We got this going on. We got to make it a priority to be in the presence of God. Because if we're not, we're not going to be effective. We need Him. We need to be in His presence. The disciples were not focused on who Jesus was, His power and what He's capable of doing. Does this sound like your heart today? You've lost sight of who Jesus is and you lost sight of what he's capable of doing. Let's look at verses 41 through 42. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child and gave him back to his father. Now, whenever I read this, I'm like, Jesus, that was... That was a pretty rough response that he gave to this man, right? Who is, who is Jesus talking to? And he says, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I bear with you? Was Jesus, was he being mean? No, Jesus was trying to correct in love the people here. So who was Jesus talking to? Was he talking to the father of the boy? Was he talking to the multitude? Was he talking to the disciples? Most people believe Jesus is only referring to the disciples here, but I believe Jesus is really talking to everyone here. I think Jesus could very clearly see in this man's heart, and I'm sure in this man's heart he had a lot of doubt and a lot of disbelief, mainly because the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And so now he is begging Jesus, more than likely with a lot of doubt in his heart. And I'm sure Jesus is calling this man out for the lack of trust. I believe he is addressing the multitudes as well because they came to Jesus with the ulterior motives. They didn't come to worship him for who he is. They came because they wanted something from him. Just like most of the multitudes. And lastly, I believe Jesus was calling out the disciples for not having the faith to carry out his commands. And I know I'm guilty of all three of those. I'm guilty of having a lack of trust in my heart for God. I'm guilty of serving him with the ulterior motives. And I'm 
most certainly guilty of not having the faith to carry out his commands. And Jesus calls us out. It's not okay. But despite the rebukes, I want you to notice Jesus still has mercy. And he still says, bring your, bring your son here. And it goes to show us the heart of Jesus. He was correcting these people, not out of anger, not out of rage, but out of love. Hebrews 12.6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. In other words, God does correct us. And it's not always the most pleasant thing, but he corrects us because he loves us. And he was correcting these people because he wanted them to grow in their faith. How do you respond to the correction of God? So notice in verse 42, this demon, it makes the boy convulse and throws him down. This demon, it manifests itself when it's brought before Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was exposing the darkness. Just like if you were to shine the light in a dark room, it would expose everything that's in the darkness. Jesus exposed all the darkness that was around him. And Jesus called us, the church, the light of the world, to go out and shine his light in the dark places. Are we doing that? So many Christians complain about how dark and evil this world is instead of going out and shining the light on the darkness. We're called to go out and shine. But this is an amazing picture, right? This demon had power over this boy, but it had no power over Jesus. And I believe maybe someone needs to hear that about a sin in your life. You think, this sin has so much power over me, but it has no power over Jesus. And he defeated that sin and paid for it in full. So you don't have to be a slave to it. So Jesus casts out this demon. He heals the boy. More than likely, this boy had many physical injuries incurred on him by this demon. So he heals the boy and then gives him back to his father. Let's look at the last three verses today, 43 through 45. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Verse 43 is a great verse. It tells us all the people were amazed at the majesty or the glory of God. They witnessed what Jesus was capable of. Are you amazed? Once again, I asked a question. Are you amazed at the majesty and the glory of who God is? Or perhaps you're blind to it, once again, because of these things you're allowing to, to blind you in your life. Worry, fear, doubt. Now, verse 44, Jesus says this, and you almost read it, and you're like, well, Jesus, you're killing the vibe. Everyone is, is amazed at your glory, and Jesus comes in, and he says, well, let this sink down in your ears. I'm about to be betrayed and killed. Why did Jesus say this? Well, once again, too many people wanted to follow Jesus and make it about themselves, but they weren't interested in the sufferings attached to following Jesus. They were interested in the working power, but they weren't interested in the sufferings. And many Christians today, or many people today, I should say, they're very interested in what Jesus can give them, but they're not interested in surrendering their lives to him. And once again, Jesus was trying to remind them, yes, you've witnessed these great things, but don't lose sight of why I'm here. I'm here to pay for your sins. And in verse 45, it tells us that the disciples, they, they missed it. They didn't understand. They lost sight. Are you losing sight today? Maybe you're following Jesus and you want it to be all about yourself instead of who God is. Maybe your focus is on what you want to do, your motives, instead of who Jesus is. And if you're here today and you're not saved, Jesus is reminding you just as he was reminding his disciples. This is why he came. He came to die on the cross, to rise from the dead. Why? Because he didn't come 
to change politics. He came to save people from their sin. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, there is hope and salvation in no other. Only through Jesus Christ will you have salvation. It's not in our works. It's not in our deeds. It's not in a philosophy. It's in Jesus and through faith in Him and Him alone. And so as we wrap up, I'll wrap up with this and we'll, we'll share in communion together. The disciples here were, were taught a very important lesson. They needed to focus and they needed to have the emphasis on Jesus. They needed to focus on His glory, focus on His majesty, focus on who He is. But so many of them were not focused on the glory of Jesus. And maybe that describes you today. You're not focused on who He is. You've forgotten His power. You've forgotten who He is. You've forgotten what He's capable of doing. And if that's you today, I just encourage you, take this time and ask the Lord to fix your eyes back on Him. Because as we share in communion together, all communion is, it's an act of worship and remembering what Jesus has done for us. Remembering that He is enough. Remembering that He paid the penalty for our sins so that we didn't have to. And maybe you've been burnt out in your ministry, burnt out in the work that God has called you to do, and you're burnt out because you're not, you're not in God's presence. You're not seeking to be dependent on Him anymore. And if, and if that's you in ministry, I just want to encourage you with this. We serve a God of restoration. But we need to fix our eyes back on Jesus and remember who He is. And maybe you've been serving and believing in a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. You serve a Jesus who you treat just like the gods of, of, of all these false religions. You treat Him as if He has no power. You treat Him as if He doesn't have the power to save and to change. When in reality... He's the only one who can save and change us. And as we take communion, we're remembering this change that Jesus brought to our hearts and to our lives, that He saved us and His blood has washed us clean from our sins. And if there's a sin in your life today that you're struggling with, that you just want to get free of, but this sin has had so much power over you, just like this demon in this story had so much power over this boy, that sin has no power over Jesus. He paid the price for it. He defeated it. And so if you're struggling in sin today, I want to encourage you, surrender that sin to Jesus. Lay it down. You have freedom. You have victory. It's already been paid for. And maybe there's a sin in your life or in your heart that has been just tearing your focus off who Jesus is. Now's the time to repent of that as we share in communion together, as we observe this this act of worship, as we look on Jesus and think on His blood that was shed for us, and as we think about His sacrifice, we need to repent of anything that is not of Him. And maybe there's a relationship in your life that you need to have reconciliation and you need to seek forgiveness in. Now's the time to make it right. Communion's a very serious thing. Act only for the believer. This is not for the non-believer. And so as we partake in this act of worship, there's going to be a song that's played. I just encourage you, take this time and pray. Seek the Lord. Ask God to search your heart. Pray as David prayed. David said, Lord, search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. And maybe that's what you need to pray. I encourage you, pray that. Take this time to just evaluate and search your heart and repent of anything that's not of Jesus. And maybe once again, your focus has not been on Jesus and you need to fix your eyes and your heart back on Him. I encourage you, now's the time to do that. So as the song is playing, I just encourage you, take this time to pray and then I'll come up and I'll lead us in prayer and we'll take together.